Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder, treason, and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Welcome to Now Playing's DC Comics Hitmen Retrospective Series. There are only murderers in this room. Continuing our look at movies based on DC Comics characters, Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob will be reviewing the film adaptations of Road to Perdition. This is the life we chose, the life we lead. And there is only one guarantee. None of us will see heaven. A history of violence. You got anything to say before I blow your brains out, you miserable prick? V for Vendetta. Are you like a crazy person? I'm quite sure they will say so. The Losers. I am a lethal killing machine. It was a secret government experiment. It did stuff to me. Spooky stuff. Red and Red 2. Eh, they don't make them like that anymore. These podcasts will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Because it's all so fucking hysterical. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, Billy. Let's show this asshole we mean business. Today we're discussing Road to Perdition, starring Academy Award winner Tom Hanks, Academy Award winner Paul Newman, Academy Award nominee Jude Law, and directed by Academy Award winner Sam Mendes. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and I don't have any awards. Stuart in LA. This is Jacob, and I hope to get to heaven at least an hour before the devil knows I'm dead. And we are continuing our look at DC Comics, but... There's no capes, there's no cowls, there's no spandex. This is a period piece from a director who won an Oscar for a drama. I honestly didn't know it was a comic book. Yeah, this is an original graphic novel, meaning it wasn't printed out in floppy single-issue form. You know, we have those different imprints. We've talked about Vertigo. This was published by another imprint called Paradox Press, where... DC was trying to expand. They did a lot of different books about crime and superstitions, and, you know, some of them were factual, and they did have some graphic novels, and this was one of them. And hats off to DC, because this is more my speed here. I mean, I tend to get a little testy when we have too much cape action, but, yeah, comic book doesn't necessarily have to mean superhero. I bought comic books, and I never bought superhero comics. I think that that's great. Maybe that's... testament to its legacy. I mean, DC does stand for Detective Comics. Maybe it makes sense that more of their stories have been about noir and detectives. But, I mean, it should be pointed out, there's no real connective tissue between these movies. It's not the same director. It's not the same comic book writers. I mean, basically what we did is we looked at all the movies that have been made from DC properties and said, hey, these have a lot of guys with guns shooting people. And we just said, Let's call it DC Hitman. This is our first, because it was the first movie to come out. Yeah, a perfect introduction to the DC Hitman series, which will actually end with a theatrical release. Red 2 is coming out. That is also based on a DC comic, or at least the original Red was. And so, in this retrospective, we have Road to Perdition, A History of Violence, V for Vendetta, The Losers, and then the two Red films. Yeah, I think the closest we're going to get to 
tights and capes is maybe V for Vendetta. I think V wears a cape in that film. But yeah, we're really pulling away from the DC universe here and we're going to their smaller imprints. We're going to be doing some Vertigo stuff where these are self-contained stories, self-contained universes where they're allowed to just kind of tell their story with a beginning, middle and end. They don't need to worry about what's coming next. Yeah, no Marvel equivalent I have for this here. The closest we would have for Marvel would be Kick-Ass, which was that icon imprint where they kind of just let them do whatever. But yeah, not as extensive as DC is explored. Yeah, we'll be doing Kick-Ass right after we finish with this. But I'm really excited. I feel like we're now in a style of movie that now playing doesn't do enough of. I love a good crime movie. We kind of got a few of these when we did our Martin Scorsese-Leonardo-DiCaprio collaborations. I want to get back to this. I think that seeing something from a hitman perspective can be really cool. As cool as any do-gooder in a cape. And I'm excited to get to some of these, too. I read a ton of different genres of comics. I know a lot of people think of the superhero thing, but yeah... We're doing some interesting films here, and I've only seen a few of them. I haven't seen this one before, Road to Perdition. It's one that's been on my Netflix queue for quite a while, but it finally got to the top this week. And I saw this back when it came out. I'm not usually a fan of period pieces, as longtime Now Playing listeners will know, but this one kind of looked good because it was dealing with hitmen, it was dealing with gangsters. I do kind of have a thing for gangsters, and... It had a good pedigree to it. Tom Hanks, especially at this point in his career, was picking very interesting projects. Jude Law, always creepy. Not always creepy. <laughs> More often than not. Even when he's trying to be charming, he gives me the skeeves. Yeah, this is a cast that we wouldn't normally get in a now-playing movie. I've got to say, this may be the most golden assembly of talent, maybe, for any movie. I mean... Yeah, the number of Oscars these people have won or been nominated with is unlike anything. And I want to point out, you guys typically don't go for Oscar bait. So I'm going to be really curious to know what you think about this movie. I haven't seen it before. I've never seen Road to Perdition. And it largely stemmed from the fact that, go ahead and shoot me, but I was not that impressed with Sam Mendes' debut. I know everyone under the sun went crazy for American Beauty. Not me. I just didn't care for it. There was a lot of movies about dysfunctional suburbia. I just didn't think it was one of the sharpest. And I just wasn't anxious for another Sam Mendes movie. So it flipped by me until now. I don't think I don't go for Oscar bait. I eventually see all those Oscar-nominated films. But yeah, American Beauty, I've seen it. Didn't like it. Hey. We agree with something here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. I didn't realize there was another one. I didn't realize, though, that... This was the same director, so that's probably a good thing, or else I would have been really biased sitting down to this. I realized it afterwards, the name sounded familiar, I looked it up, but yeah, didn't like that work. He also did Skyfall, which I loved, Yeah. so I guess this will be the tiebreaker. And I love Revolutionary Road. The movie he made with Leo and Kate later, I think it's the movie that American Beauty wanted to be. I actually have become a fan of his work, but not at the time that this released. I oftentimes see things because of the people that make them, and Sam Mendes hadn't joined that club yet. And I guess I stand alone as I really liked American Beauty. Despite really liking it, I do think that the public in general went even more nuts for it than I think it deserved. But I like that movie. I can't recall, though, if I realized that this was from the guy who did American Beauty at the time, because the trailers for this film made it look like a bit more of an action piece, and my mind wouldn't immediately go, oh yes, of course, the guy who did American Beauty brought us this. So, given that it's such a different type of movie, at least the way it was pitched, 
I can't remember if I knew it was him or not. Now, having done Skyfall, I, of course, knew Skyfall was the American Beauty guy. And when I saw the name come up on the credits watching it this time, yeah, it all clicked for me for this review. But I haven't read the comic. I did watch the bonus features as I'm the comic book multimedia guy. Even on these hitmen, which aren't really always the type of film I'd go for. I did watch all the bonus features, so I know about it, and I know some of the real-life inspiration drawn upon to do it. And of course, I have read the graphic novel. That's part of my role here for these comic retrospectives, and it didn't impress me that much. The art on a technical level was okay, and the story was alright, but I could see why you'd want to make it a movie. It was action-packed, a lot of shooting, this whole gangster thing. I could see if you're really into that 1930s gangster vibe that you would really love this graphic novel you'd want to see this as a movie and so i got why they'd want to translate it from reading the graphic novel i had no idea this property was a comic book until we looked up what dc had made and realized we needed to cover it at some point but after seeing this movie i said that i needed to know what was in the original story so i went back retroactively and i've read it since and i'll talk about my feelings about it i guess as we go through the movie, but it was not something that was in my head upon first viewing here. And I'll admit it, I had no idea what the word perdition meant. I had to look it up. I guess you haven't hung around any 90-year-olds. <laughs> no. Come on, you gotta get some religion, Stuart. <laughs> you know, I thought because of gangsters, I guess in my head I thought it was prohibition, and then I realized, no, this is really not about bootlegging at all. I mean, maybe tangentially, but it's the road to hell, the road to spiritual decay, and you know, it's actually a town as well. It is a physical destination on a map, and it is also a state of being that our main characters will be heading into. I mean, I guess it's a good title, but I don't know. That's always tricky when you introduce a spiffy word like that as your title. Maybe that was the turnoff, too. Indeed, I knew what it meant. I was surprised that the movie never calls it out as anything else than a city. It relies on the viewer having a good vocabulary or just never getting it. If they want to take the title extremely literally. Well then, Arnie, I guess you better fill them in. What is the road to perdition? It's 1931 in Prohibition-era U.S., and Michael Sullivan Sr. works as an enforcer, collector, and hitman for mob boss John Rooney. Rooney raised Michael like his own son, but still favors real son Connor, though Connor is a bit homicidal and stealing from his father's organization and killing others to cover it up. One night, 12-year-old Michael Sullivan Jr. hides in the back of his father's car to find out exactly what it is his dad does for a living and witnesses Connor kill a man who knew of Connor's theft. John and Michael agree that Michael Jr. will stay quiet, but Connor sets out to kill the entire Sullivan family. He kills Michael's wife and youngest son, Peter, but Michael Sr. and Jr. escape and go on the road looking for revenge against Connor. Michael Sr. first tries to find aid among the Chicago mob bosses, but they refuse to help him as they're in cahoots with Connor, and they hire creepy assassin Harlan McGuire to track down and kill Michael. The Sullivans go about robbing banks, taking only mob money so they can hit the mob where it hurts and hopefully turn them against the Connors. And in one robbery, Michael gets papers proving Connor was stealing from his father. In the robbery, Michael is wounded by a shot from Harlan, and Michael Jr. drives him to a farmhouse where the old farmer and his wife tend to Michael Sr.'s wounds. Once healed, Michael Sr. goes to see John with the evidence, but John still won't give up his son. Michael knows what's needed. He kills John, though the old mobster was like a father to him. Then he confers with Al Capone to get permission to kill Connor. And then it's done. Michael kills Connor in a bathtub with the mob boss's blessing. 
He then takes Michael Jr. to a house by the lake owned by Michael's aunt in perdition, but there Harlan is waiting. He killed Michael's aunt and uncle and shoots Michael Sr., and Michael Jr. comes in with a gun to avenge his father, but can't pull the trigger. But the distraction allows Michael Sr. to pull a gun and kill Harlan, saving his son's body and his soul as Michael Sr.'s biggest fear was his son would follow in his footsteps. Michael Sr. dies in his son's arms, and with nowhere else to go, Michael Jr. returns to the farmhouse with the childless old couple, who take him in as credits roll. Are there different versions of this movie? This movie was so Oscar-anointed that they sent out free copies to any member of the Academy. And it just so happens I rent an apartment from someone that used to be in it, because I own this movie. It's a VHS Oscar screener copy, and so I saw what must be the earliest cut of this film on VHS. But you mentioned Al Capone. He wasn't in the version I saw. They mention his name. They say Al. There was, there is only one version of this movie and then a half an hour of cut scenes on the Blu-ray. A cut scene that actually showed Al Capone. Ah, okay. But there is the phone call with Al at the end to get the permission. Yeah, and he's in the comic as well. I did wonder if they thought about including this figure. I mean, they heavily feature Frank Nitti, who was Al Capone's number one. I thought it was almost kind of strange not to have a mention of him here at all, but I guess it's in passing. Yeah, I mean, if you go to the cutscenes, you can see this fun scene, but it really doesn't deserve to be in the film, with Anthony LaPaglia chewing up the scenery playing Capone. Ah, okay. Well, we don't need scenery chewing here. I think one of the things that you'll first note about this movie is how restrained it is. There's very few people that go big. Maybe Jude Law, but for the most part, everyone else here is doing really internalized acting. And if somebody came in and did a hammy Capone, it just wouldn't feel right. The perspective we have here, both in the comic book and at the start of this movie, is from a child. This is a 12-year-old boy narrating six weeks of his life that he spent with his father. And we start there, and then everything else we see is a flashback. The first thing I want to ask you guys, because I didn't find it to be true, did you find that this was really a child's perspective? Well, the narration that starts at the beginning and at the end is very wizened. But yeah, it's a child's voice. So if you look at the narrator here, is it a child or is it just a child who's been through so much and been forced to grow up very quickly and see things from an adult's perspective? The interesting thing is, if you've read the comic, you get this type of narration. It is actually Michael Jr. as an older man reflecting on this and recording it. And th that comic is really from Michael's point of view. They did another series on the road to perdition, which kind of filled in a lot of the empty spaces in between road to perdition that you wouldn't have seen from Michael's perspective. But here, it's very obviously, yeah, it's someone looking back. And this does seem like it's going for that Oscar thing, you know, was my father a decent man or no good at all? Let us reflect on these six weeks in the winter of 1931. This stuff, it rubs me the wrong way. Again, if it's done well, I don't notice it, but it puts me on edge. Why are we framing it this way? I'm looking for something deeper if you're going to frame it with this child reflecting on this experience. What is he supposed to get out of it? It's going to cause me to question more things. I went with this. I mean, you have a voiceover narration of a boy in a certain period looking back i'm kind of reminded of other films like stand by me now there they did make the choice like you said the comic did of an adult 
telling a story from when he was a child. Here, because they use the boy actor's voice to narrate it, it doesn't quite feel as removed. But to me, it's just setting a tone. I'm not placing any expectations upon it based on a very, very brief opening narration that doesn't encompass the whole film. It's very few and far between. Yes, if I were to watch this opening, I would think, wow, this kid is going to narrate a story for me. But it largely drops out, and so does this kid. This is a Tom Hanks vehicle. And I think one of the strange things about it is that it tries to insist that it's about this child. Tom Hanks is trying to save this child's soul, but he's along for the ride. I would dare say this story would play much the same way if there wasn't a 12-year-old boy nipping at Tom Hanks's heels as he goes about his vengeance plot. One of the weaker choices in this movie is to frame it around this kid. And maybe it's just that I'm not responding to this actor. I don't know who Tyler Hoechlin is, but he's no Haley Joel Osment. He is not someone that is grabbing me. I don't feel, when I look at him, that the experience of this movie is enriched. I think that this is a Tom Hanks movie, and he's kind of in the way. I take it as a buddy road trip movie. Yes, Tom Hanks is the active character, but I don't know that I ever expected the two of them to end this movie happy together. You know what I mean? So the son may be in many ways kind of a MacGuffin for the film, but... I think it works well as a buddy film. I think it's equal parts. I think that this is a story about fathers and sons, plural. And by framing it around this primary relationship, maybe Tom Hanks, I mean, it is Tom Hanks, is a little bit more featured in the film. But to me, it's their movie, not his movie. I gotta disagree. This son, Michael Jr., he disappears for so much of it when Tom Hanks goes a-killin'. Well, this son, I don't even know what this room is. All these people reading the newspaper. Hey, you sit there. You wait in the car. He never becomes an active participant. And if we're on a road to perdition, a road to hell, Tom Hanks is already the gangster. He's already taken that road. The question should be, is this son going to go down that road? And if this was a buddy film, I think that conflict would be there more. We get it at the very end, but we don't see that son being drawn to this gangster life. We don't see him wanting to participate. Yeah, they try in little ways to show that they have the same name. For example, this is Michael Sullivan Jr. And he is older than his brother Tommy, who is afraid to go near the casket, who is just more innocent and childlike. And they have a little moment where Michael gets into a school fight. They have a little moment where Michael pickpocks something from the pharmacy. They try to imply that maybe he is heading down a road of crime like we'll learn that Michael Sullivan, his father, Tom Hanks, has led. But I feel like this movie's problem, partially, is the fact that it wants us to believe that this child is, yeah, on a road to hell, but doesn't want to show us him firing a gun showing him in moments of violence. It really is afraid, probably this is Hollywood interference, of showing us the impact this is having on a child. And so we have a narrator that just seems unaffected by it all. It's a strange perspective for me. And I get the movies about fathers and son. It's a theme that's heavy in almost every scene. But I really feel like this movie would be faster if they got rid of this family here and just made it about Hanks. But then you'd lose the soul of the film. Uh, I, I don't know if there's much of a soul there. <laughs> it would be a very different film. I agree. The theme of this film would have to change in order to reflect that moment. But 
I'm not sure that it's better for keeping Tyler in the mix here. I'm not a fan of this child. I just don't feel like he does anything here. And when I, he's on screen, I wish he wasn't. The father-son relationship that really does seem to matter is the one that Hanks has with Paul Newman. I think this casting is crucial. It's where they really tip their hand. This is where I know that Sam Mendes wants to make The Godfather because he's cast an iconic Hollywood star in the pivotal role of a mob boss who, for all that we can see here in the opening, is actually a sweet old man. There's nothing to fear, but we recognize his power because he's this big star. I'm glad I'm not the only one that saw The Godfather here. I totally got it from this opening funeral that goes on for 18 minutes. But it's nowhere as engrossing as that wedding scene that seems to go on forever in The Godfather. There's some dice being played in a bathroom, an explanation of why ice is on this corpse. There's nothing gripping me here. Even with Tom Hanks' character, Michael Sullivan, I never feel like it's known. There's hints throughout. Oh, is he a soldier? Is that why he's such a good killer? We don't know. We don't find out. And I'm waiting for something to grab my attention here in this 18 minutes at a funeral. The singing and the dancing and all that. And it's just fallen flat for me. And this is one of those rare films where it's the performances that draw me in. It's Tom Hanks in a very un-Tom Hanksy role. I grew up in the 80s watching Tom Hanks in Splash and Joe versus the Volcano, and if you told me that someday he would turn in a subdued performance and muted like he does here, I wouldn't have believed you. But he is an enigma during these opening scenes. I know that he is a mob worker. I realize the insinuation of all of the mob people there, but I'm very curious why he's so stoic, why he's so reserved. And when they play the piano, you get to see a crack in the facade. And I really want to call out the acting immediately of somebody who I had no clue who the hell he was the first time I saw this movie, Daniel Craig. If you've listened to our James Bond series, you know I kind of run hot and cold on Craig. But Craig in this opening scene, in the wake, is pitch perfect. And his reaction when they're playing the piano tells me everything. A lot of times on Now Playing, I'll be like, what am I supposed to get from this? He tells me exactly that he's both moved by the music and jealous as hell of Michael Sr.'s relationship with John Rooney. I get it all from these performances. And because of that... And because of the humor and the tension that happens when the dead guy's brother drunkenly starts to threaten Rooney, I'm in. I'm hooked immediately by the characters. Come on, we've seen this before. He's Fredo. He's the real one. He's related by blood to Newman that gives him a legitimacy that allows him to be a slouch. I mean, the very first time we see him, little Michael Jr. has gone upstairs on Newman's orders to go retrieve a coat. And this guy tells him to get out of there. He's busy while he's lying on a couch listening to the radio smoking. He's not busy. He's just disengaged. We know instantly he's the one that's going to inherit the empire, but he doesn't deserve it. It should go to Hanks, but because Hanks is an orphan who was quote-unquote adopted, I mean, I'm not sure if there was any legal proceedings done, but he was raised as a son in this uh, Irish mobster family. Rooney thinks of him as his own but he's just not as good as flesh and blood. And that will be the conflict, indeed, for the rest of the movie. Newman will have to choose which son is 
the one to follow. And it is a road to perdition. And Artie, I get what you're saying about the performances here. When Connor says, after watching that piano being played, it's all so fucking hysterical. I get what he means by that. He feels so burned that his father is having this emotional moment with another surrogate son. I, I get that. It's almost like it's all just in slow motion. There's little moments that, yes, are telling me something, but I just feel like... They could have been more judicial with what they're showing here. They, it feels like they want to make this an epic, like that wedding scene in The Godfather. And there's little moments that are great. It's just, as a whole, it drags for me. Your familiarity with The Godfather is directly proportional to how exciting these scenes are going to be, I feel like. Because, all right, they changed it from Italian to Irish. It's Newman instead of Brando. We have Hanks instead of Pacino, but it's still the same old thing. Big family epic, really methodical pacing, a journey about can we legitimize a son? Can he get out or will he be pulled back in? Coppola has already done this at this point when this movie was released in 2002. I don't mind this opening, but I am wondering what they're going to do that's different. And I'm hoping it's more than a mediocre Irish accent. The key is Hanks. I totally get that he is shut down as a family man. We get that in that moment where he barely responds to being called to dinner and is unloading his gun. I get and believe that nice guy Tom Hanks is a man that is haunted. What I never totally get here, what we never were allowed to see, is that Tom Hanks is a motherfucking badass. <laughs> I mean, eventually what will happen is little Michael is going to follow him on a hit, but he's not the one that does the killing. It's all Connor. No, he kills more people than Connor. Connor pulls the first trigger and kills the drunken guy from the wake, but then the drunken guy's enforcers go after Connor and Hanks guns him down with the Tommy gun. Hanks kills two, Connor kills one. I was wondering why he was firing that Tommy gun. I couldn't tell who he was shooting. We never know who those people were. You were watching a VHS that might have cut them off. They were literally on the side of the screen. <laughs> It was letterbox, but it was kind of smudgy. I got to say, this tape was a little old, and it was hard to make out certain details. But they pulled back here. And it's something in, in the comic that is much more explicit. He's called the Angel of Death. And this character is scary because he's so bloodthirsty. I don't know whether they don't feel like Tom Hanks can do that, or whether they felt like they wanted to make Connor a really bad guy, and thus give him this moment, but I just don't get that Hanks is the bad one here. I feel like this kid witnesses Connor doing something bad, covering his tracks, really, because we all know the man he's killing was taking the fall for his embezzlement anyway. And so the whole story will be about proving to whoever will listen that Connor is a terrible guy and that Hanks is a good guy. I think that makes sense. I think if you had Hanks as a bloodthirsty son of a bitch, then you lose your moral center for this character he is a person who's going to hell for the things he's done but he's not an evil man he's just a man who had no family to raise him right and ended up working a life of crime to survive and provide for his family i don't think you have to be an evil man to be an efficient killer. I think that's the difference between the comic and this. And the comic, it's like he comes home from the war and he just knows how to kill. And so he's the angel of death. He gets caught up with the mob. He never comes off as an evil guy. Here, he doesn't come off as an evil guy, but 
I don't believe this is someone that would have lasted this long in the underworld. And I think a lot of my problems with this film is going to be buying into Hanks. He's done dramatic roles by this point. He's proven he's not Joe fighting the versus the volcanoes. But in this role, he could grow that little mustache, but it's not convincing me that he is an efficient killer as a gangster that could survive this story. I hate it when Hanks grows that mustache, by the way. <laughs> you didn't like the terminal? Yeah, you know, it is the killer instinct that I'm missing here. I feel like Tanks is pretty good in all other respects, but because I don't buy him as this nasty thing that Michael can't grow up to be, I mean, that's the story they're claiming that they want to tell. I have to save Michael from turning into me. He's already on that road. How do I deliver him to a legitimate, happy childhood and life? Well, I just don't believe that Hanks is all that bad. He's Tom Hanks, after all. I mean, how bad can he be? It's Connor. We know that Connor is bad. I'll tell you, the only moment that I really felt like Hanks sold me how scary he was is when Connor betrays him and pays lip service that night that, okay, I believe you, the kid won't say anything, but decides that, no, he's going to need to eradicate this family anyway. And Hanks has to turn against the family that's protected him all these years. And yeah, that's where we see that he's fast enough to grab a gun off a table before somebody who's sitting at that table and do it. Admittedly, we never get to see him be as efficient a killer as we'll see later on in the Jude Law character, but you get that he's fast. And he, I never just took him as a badass, and yeah, perhaps it's because they cast Tom Hanks in the role and not Jason Statham, but I got that he was doing it to make a living. Is he the most evil thing? Is he something to completely turn away from? Well, he's so isolated by himself and perhaps because he's tortured by what he's done. Perhaps that does need to be explored a little bit more. And perhaps because it's Tom Hanks, he gets a little bit of a pass from me because I enjoy his performance. Yeah, I think everyone likes Tom Hanks, and that's why he's in the star. I mean, that's why they did it. But you know what? You said Jason Statham? I think already this movie would be stronger if we had someone we believed was a killer like Statham. I think that's actually an excellent choice. He might have been a little young in 2002 to play this part. But yeah, I actually wish it was Statham. Can't believe Stewart's going for the action star for once. Now playing first. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it makes sense. Maybe he wouldn't have been able to deliver some of the more internalized drama that Hanks gets. Hanks does pretty good with the minimalism of his performance. In most scenes, particularly when he has to play off of the child, he's pretty good. I see his anguish and believe it. It's just that I don't believe he's that bad. What I like about him is that he's smart, though. He's smart to realize that he's in a bad situation when Michael witnesses the killing. And when Connor does kill his family, he takes that moment to grieve, but he doesn't immediately go on the warpath. He's smart to go to people with whom he has a connection, higher up mob bosses who he worked for in Chicago. It adds such a layer of credibility and verisimilitude to this movie that he tries to go to others for protection for him and Michael first. And yeah, I'm sure revenge is somewhere on his mind, but... No, he's already shot the messenger. Prior to that scene, prior to the Chicago trip, he's gone back to the place where they always hold their meetings, and some poor guy is there with a suitcase full of money and says, Hey, why don't you... Well, that is true. He's, he did, like I say, revenge was on his mind, but he went looking for protection. Yes, I agree that he realizes that he needs someone bigger than Paul Newman, that if push came to shove, Paul Newman knows, you know, he knows that Connor is bad. Connor comes to him and he's crying and he beats on him, but then he hugs him at the end. At the end of the day, Paul Newman has shown you who he is by siding with Connor 
over Hanks. And that's why from this point forward, he isn't Brando in The Godfather. We want him to fall over in the tomato patch. We want Newman dead. And that's strange because I thought that this would be more of a complicated part for Newman. But truly, for most of the movie, I'm just waiting for him to admit that he was wrong and or get shot. I like how Newman plays it, though, because he seems so conflicted. And when he's talking to Nettie and he seems anguished about ordering the hit on Michael and refuses to order the hit on Michael Jr., I always wonder, will he turn? How much does he know of what Connor's doing? We get from that early scene that Connor is probably stealing from his father. Can his father come to side with the good son against the biological son? It's a conflict I feel I've seen in many other stories of the bad biological son who is entitled and starts to bring down the father's empire and eventually the father has to kill him in godfather it was brothers but here it's father and son i think newman brings a nuanced performance that it didn't have to end the way it did and i wasn't sure how it would end i did like newman's performance here when he confronts connor you do get that that he wants to go with michael he wants to choose him but at the end of the day they're mobsters and you stick with the family Yeah, I feel like this is wrote. The setup feels largely borrowed from Coppola, and while handsomely made, I haven't been engaged. But I will say at this point, once Hanks goes on the offensive, once he goes to Chicago, I am keyed into the movie that I wanted to get. There's some stakes. There's something that could happen here, and I feel like the middle of the movie is the best part of the movie. And Arnie, what you were saying, I do like how you kind of see the workings of the mob here, that he goes to Chicago and he works his way up the ladder. That's one of the things that I saw in that graphic novel, why this was your thing, you know, mobsters in the 30s, this would really grip you. Like the book and like the movie here, it is the most exciting stuff where you see those smarts. You see him going around trying to, you know, hey, just let me get him. Just tell me where he is and it's over. And the mobsters, you know, this is about business. Until it's a bad business deal, we're not going to turn him over. And, and so you see where Hanks will go from there. That, I do like this turn in the plot where we start to see some brains and something happening. Yeah, I enjoy the second act a lot, too, but not only because it now makes them active characters. At this point, they've been very reactive. Michael was active getting in the backseat of the car, but it's really more mischievous than anything, and they were on the run and reacting to everything. They become active, but something else happens. This is where the father and son relationship is really explored. Through the entire first act, Michael Sr. is very distant from Michael Jr. And even when they're on the run together, he's protective of his son, but he's hardly even talking to his son. And when he goes to get food, Michael Jr. is not even going to go in with him, not going to eat. They're very estranged. And Michael Jr. probably holds some resentment because of what Michael Sr. does. Disappointed. He's been reading these Lone Ranger comics this whole time, and when... His little brother asks, what does dad do? Sometimes he goes on missions for the president. You know, he's picturing his father as a old-timey superhero, and he finds out he's just a contract killer and enforcer. But here, they really start to bond, and what I find to be the most central story of this, which both of you have come out and said you didn't like, the two of them bonding is what I like. It also gives Hanks a chance to show some charm. My favorite scene of this whole movie is when they're eating pie. And the son goes, I want my cut for what we've stolen. Father says, how much? He goes, $200. And, you know, they've stolen thousands. And he goes, okay. And the son pauses and goes, could I have had more? You'll never know. My favorite scene is that. No, you're right. It's their best scene together. It's also a minute long. And I want to just point out, 
they're bonding because, yes, they have to work together because they're against the entire mob system, including the Chicago mobster. They have no protection at this point. That's an exciting conflict. I still feel like this movie pulls punches about how far they want to show the kid manning up, as it were. I mean, we have a learn-to-drive scene, and he's handed a gun, but by and large, this kid is not a collaborator and a sidekick. And it's what's different than the comic book. You definitely see the kid more as a getaway driver to some really violent crimes than you do here on screen. And he eventually has to partake in the violence. He has to save his father by shooting some gangsters, not just honking the horn over and over. Oh, God, I would not want that because the whole point of this movie, the entire point is that Michael Sr. is trying to make it so Michael Jr. isn't a killer. He doesn't want his son to be a killer. And the climax of the film isn't, will Michael Sr. live or die? Will Michael Jr. live or die? The question is, will Michael Jr. pull the trigger? And you don't want him to. If you have a comic where he's complicit in the violence, it completely undermines everything I like about this movie. But Arnie, you have to believe that he could be tempted by it. If it's a road to hell, you have to believe the best intentions to protect him is actually going to leave him closer to that. I mean, let's look at The Godfather. Al Pacino was never going to be like Marlon Brando at the start of that movie. And by the end of it, he's slamming the door on Diane Keaton and putting hits on people. I mean, that seems to me what they're building here in theory. But I don't get the sense, maybe because it's a 12-year-old boy that's just doing whatever his father tells him to, and his father's not entrusting him with any of the dark work, it just doesn't seem like that story is unfolding in an effective way. It doesn't seem like this child is ever in danger of being a killer until their contrived last scene. And the graphic novel has a very different ending where we do see a redemption from Michael Jr. He's joined the clergy and become a priest, reconciling what he had to go through with his father. But to Stewart's point, fine, you don't want to see him shooting people. I need to see some temptation. I need to see why he'd want to go to the dark side here, not just a getaway driver. Michael Sr., he's pretty justified. I like this plan of stealing this money. He needs to make this a bad business deal to keep Connor in hiding for the mob. He's stealing from the mob. Not going to get worked up over that, but I need to see him some kind of temptation, some kind of journey down that road to perdition. Otherwise, it's just going to a town in Kansas. Yeah, this is still just a Hanks vigilante movie. I feel like Hanks said, I want to be Clint Eastwood. I want to be Charles Bronson. And it feels designed to give him that image. It does not feel like he's protecting this child here. Not really. See, and I get from it that, yeah, when they're robbing the banks, he is putting his son in some semi-necessary danger, I may say. And if his first priority was to his son, if his only priority was making his son a good man who survives this, he would have taken Connor's initial offer of 25 grand to go to Ireland. He is a man who is equally concerned with saving his son and avenging the son who he loved more than the current one. I also think that it's a little bit put out there when Nettie is talking to Connor Sr. and saying, you know, if we don't kill this little boy, this little boy is going to grow up to be a man. And do you think he's going to forget? So even if it's not active here, I get that if they kill Tom Hanks, eventually this boy will go on the warpath killing mobsters for revenge. Everyone understands that, but Newman, I think it's interesting that, yeah, we have Nettie meeting with Hanks 
afterwards going in the back room and they're all there. <laughs> Daniel Craig's there. Paul Newman's there. They beat them to Chicago. He's like, what are we going to do? Of course, Daniel Craig's like, blow Tom Hanks away. He's in the building. Don't let him leave. And Newman more or less agrees with that. But his one caveat is don't kill the kid. Don't kill the kid. Well, Nitty calls up his hitman and tells the hitman, kill the kid. But yes, Newman is the holdout here. He just can't reconcile the idea of putting a hit on a child. It's what he should have done with his own offspring. But if he had done that, we wouldn't be in this situation. But by doing this, we introduce what may be the most colorful and interesting character of the entire movie, Jude Laws, Harlan, the crime photographer. Yeah, you talk about not being able to reconcile things. I don't understand why this character is in this slow, somber film that's so internal. And now we get something that seems almost like it's out of DC Comics, a serial killer that photographs his victim as a freelance journalist. I like it, though. It is not in the comic whatsoever. But I feel like there needs to be more of this. I feel like this movie is so solemn. It is so much about so few characters. And they're all wrestling with this father and son thing. I would have liked to have dozens of more real life and imaginary characters. I wanted this world to be more populated than it was. I feel like the impulse to have Jude Law here is the right one, and they should have had more of him. My feeling on Jude Law is split. I agree with you. I did find out from watching the behind-the-scenes stuff that that character wasn't from the comics because they realized that their bad guy disappears after the first act, and their bad guy is really Connor. It's not even John. It's Connor. Right. He gets put in a hotel room for the remainder of this movie and indeed doesn't even get an invite. Yeah. So they felt like there needed to be a nemesis. That said, wouldn't it have been great if Connor was the person? If you took the Harlan and Connor characters and put them into one and at least centralize that conflict. I do like how they do it here. I like that Connor dies like a pussy in the bathtub, but they don't do enough with Jude Law's character here. He's wonderfully creepy. He's introduced as a not really just a crime scene photographer, but a corpse photographer is his specialty. Murder scenes and photographing the dead body. And when he finds out the body's not fully dead, well, he'll fix that. I do love that introduction of him. Because he is an invention of this film, I just thought, oh, this is going to be some journalist that's going to be looking into the story. And then when he sees this guy with a knife in his chest, start gasping for air, he walks over and suffocates him. Like, okay, here's a bad guy. I like that he's colorful. I, again, I think it brings life to this film. It just seems incongruous to what we have seen thus far. I love it. I'm glad it's here. I wouldn't change a thing about it, except maybe give more kinds of characters here. I feel like this middle needed to be expanded on. Quite frankly, I wish that we had gotten to Tom Hanks and his son on the run 20 minutes before they do. And I wish they had a lot more obstacles along the way when they're robbing the banks, like Jude Law, and maybe several like him. But by deferring all the evil to this new character, what it really does is make you, yeah, forget about Newman and Daniel Craig. They just don't seem to matter. They seem like they're going to die out, and they should have. This crime family would never have made it. They're too wimpy and ineffectual to really lead a city. I don't know how Newman lasted as long as he did now that he's turned into this weepy old man. And to that point, if I can jump ahead to a big question I have, at the end of this film, when there's the final showdown, it's after both John and Connor are dead, but yet 
Harlan is still out there on the kill. Is he working for himself because he's pissed that he got some glass in the face? Is he so ethical that he took $1,600? He'll get his kills. I don't know what drives this character. I get that, actually. I feel like it was a hired job. I feel like he enjoys his work. He's asked that, point blank. He through a bit of snooping on Aunt Sarah, here's where Tom Hanks is going. He knows they're heading to Perdition. He finds them on the road, eating at a diner. Hanks is alone because the son is pouting in the car. And Tom Hanks asks him as he sees him loading a camera, is that for work or pleasure? Both. He enjoys killing. So this is a perfect job for him. He may have done it for free. But yes, he is also motivated by money, and when Hanks slashes his tires and later disfigures him in these fights, yeah, it's personal. He's not going to let it go. He knows he's going to end up in perdition, and he's going to wait it out until he can have that fight. I think these are really the best action moments of the movie, too. You said they sold this movie as an action movie. It's not. It's a drama. It's a very somber, beautiful-looking drama. I want to really credit the production design, the wonderful... Rest in peace, cinematographer Conrad Hall photographed many beautiful movies. This may be one of his finest. It is a gorgeous film, but rarely does it feel sparked with life the way it does when Jude Law is in the scenes and there's shootouts and real gangster scene kind of moments. They're few and far between here. Too often it's a somber drama with morose piano tinkling and not enough is there really these fireworks you know the interplay about who's going to come in with the gun and honking the horn and it's being drowned out by the ticker tape all the tension scenes come when jude law is in the picture and that's why i'm just so grateful that he's here maybe he shouldn't have had all those scenes but this movie should have had more moments like the ones they feature him that said i'm glad they build him up the way they do because if you had to be a different hitman every time well then it would be the born identity and I don't want to sound like I'm getting down on this film because it's not an action film. Again, going back to The Godfather, more of a drama than action. I mean, there are scenes with shootouts, but it's very much this family drama, and that film works great. Here, it's not working for me. You talk about that piano score, Stuart. It's something that just comes out to me. It's like, that's the metronome for this movie. Just this slow, plodding story and we get these moments of excitement I, and I think that's why I hold on to these moments because I just feel like okay here's something happening it's not that I dislike this slow drama it's just that there's too much of it it hurts the pace of this film it, maybe it's because it's with gangsters and I'm expecting more Tommy guns here but there's just something that's not totally working with the pace I'm enjoying these times I enjoy that scene with Jude Law and Tom Hanks in the diner and they're kind of squaring off and testing each other out and seeing where each other stands I, I like that tension there that's working for me that's drama it's just I get so little of that in this film and I'm going to call this out as directorial choices this movie is this way because of Sam Mendes you read the comics I don't have these issues it's like a panel here a panel there they move through this story and there isn't any kind of lag whatsoever I feel like Sam Mendes still thinks he's directing American Beauty and um, you know morose isn't this so sad I don't know my father narrated from a child's perspective story 
that just does not honor the traditions of gangster movies enough. By aspiring to be Coppola, all he really does is slow down this movie unnecessarily. I know this is odd coming from me, but I'm enjoying the languid pace. I'm shocked, Arnie. I came into this movie the very first time I watched it, expecting it to be a heavy gangster film, kind of crossed over with the clients. A kid witnesses a murder, and now they have to go on the run and get revenge. But what I get is this drama. I did like American Beauty, and that kind of relationship. Maybe I am seeing some of the parallels here. This isn't the movie I expected, but I liked the movie I got. I'm glad that these moments linger. I wouldn't want to rush through them. I think if the movie didn't have characters that I consider to be so well-drawn and so interesting that, yeah, I'd be like, when the hell's the action coming along? But because I'm really moved by these characters and I'm really enjoying watching the relationship develop between the father and the son as they go on the driving lessons. And then the son, as he, for the first time, has to take charge when his father gets shot after that ticker tape thing and has to find help in the farmhouse. And all these little moments between these two actors. And yeah, I think Hanks is carrying most of them. I'm not sure that little Michael is necessarily necessarily pulling all his weight in the scenes but he's a cute enough kid you know he fulfills the necessary role he's a good elliot here he's not as good as henry thomas i feel like this movie is hinged on having a great child performance and they have a mediocre child performance and arnie what i think i'm hearing you say is you're buying into hanks you're buying into his character and that's why this is working for you whereas me i've never bought into him and i think a lot of that is because i don't know who he's supposed to be in this film We've gone throughout this film he's known as this killer, but I've never gotten any backstory. I don't know why I should care about him other than, oh, it's nice that he's trying to make sure his son lives. Wouldn't it be neat? I know they want to make it them against the world, but wouldn't it be neat to run into some former allies, people that know his past, people that can tell this son things his father did that the father wouldn't want to know? I feel like this kid doesn't learn anything more about his father on this road trip than he did when he saw him mow down those people in the warehouse. There isn't a lot being discovered here on the road. Some of the scenes work, Arnie. Don't get me wrong. The middle is the best part of this movie, but I don't feel like the relationships are growing. I feel like this movie is stagnant and swirling around and around on the same notes, on the same themes, again and again and again. And for me, I just got tired of it. Move on. Give me something new. I was so ready for new things to be introduced far sooner than they, they are. There's not a lot of surprise to Road to Perdition. I found myself reciting lines before they were said. I anticipated most of the things that would happen to them. I felt like this movie, by dwaddling, allows the audience to get ahead of it. I don't know that I ever got ahead of it. I know when I first watched this, what I wanted was to see these two be able to continue this and this be a story about how they were able to repair their relationship. I never knew how this story would end. I never knew what twists and turns would be taken. You didn't take it as a given Tom Hanks was going to die? No. Really? Oh, I thought that was just painted on blood red on the wall, sprayed all over that this was a martyr piece for him. It just, it's such an Oscar thing to do. Play the bad guy and die for it to save a child. It screamed it to me. I guess your expectations of this movie hinges on that, but I guess it's why I just didn't find that this was working for me. You know, again, the best moments of this movie are in the middle where things are happening. When he's robbing the banks, when he's going place to place, that's all fun. 
But when they finally decide it's Act 3 time, none of what he did actually amounted to anything. He could have just gone and mowed Paul Newman down at any point. I guess they felt like they needed to create this thing where he found some receipts and could prove to Paul Newman that his son was cheating him. But that was a given, too. We knew that Paul Newman knew what his son was doing. I didn't. I think that's supposed to be a revelatory scene, is that even with proof that your son is stealing from your business, you're not going to turn against him. He knew his son was a bad egg. He may have suspected that these rumors about theft were true, but I don't believe that he actually was convinced. In the comic, they just make it cleaner. They're both in on it. Father is sided with son, and they both agree that Hanks and family have to die. And I think it's just more expedient. This false surprise here, it's hollow. Yeah, I feel like that whole father-son thing never really plays out. I get that it's a theme of this film. It's blaringly obvious, but I wish that scene played better. That, oh, I wish I saw more conflict in Newman, that even with this evidence, do I still side with my son? You know, of course I was going to side with him the first time. I wish it just played out better. Agreed. There's nothing that happened in the second one, other than getting these receipts, that couldn't have happened before. I mean, Hanks could have just gone and shot Newman to begin with. I guess they're telling us he needed to understand that Newman was never going to be on his side. But that was telegraphed to me. I mean, it just came in screaming. I never thought that Newman would betray Connor. But this is a movie of sons trying to get approval of the father, even if it's futile to try. I think that it serves the themes that he doesn't immediately go to kill John. You might be right, but it doesn't entertain me. I can honestly say that I was disappointed that the ending goes the way that it does. It's not even exciting. It's just kind of arty. It's just like something you'd expect to see in a Hong Kong movie in slow motion. No problem for him. It's beautiful. It's what this movie is designed to do, present gangster imagery in a slow motion, artsy way that's beautiful to look at. But it's not exciting to watch Paul Newman get whacked here. Yeah, this final shootout. I get they're going for some kind of artistry here. They want to make it beautiful and tragic, but it just doesn't work for me. Uh, just on a logistic standpoint, how Hanks is just standing there firing a machine gun and everyone's kind of standing there holding their umbrella, watching. I guess maybe it's in slow motion. Maybe it happened much faster than I'm watching. But yes, I get that the rain falls very beautifully, but it feels anticlimactic to me. This doesn't feel like what they've been building up to, him just taking him out in the rain. But... This wasn't his ultimate goal. He could have killed John at any time. He didn't want to kill John. He wanted to kill Connor. And in the end, to get to Connor and to get people off his back, he had to kill John. I thought this scene was beautiful. Stuart, previously you were praising the technical aspects of this film. There are two scenes that really stand out to me. The first is when they're leaving the house after the younger brother and mother are dead and you see Michael Jr. standing there and it might as well be a black and white film. I don't even, they, maybe they did something in post, but the only color I see in that shot is the boy dressed in brown, whereas the snow is white and everything else is stark black. The second shot that I just think is so gorgeous is this assassination right here in the night. It is so beautifully shot and then it's so heartbreaking when Paul Newman says, I'm glad it's you. I half agree with you. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. Everything in this movie looks great. I'm not feeling anything out of this movie. I guess if I felt like this was an incredible turn for these characters, I would be there right there with you. But it leaves me hollow. It, it remains a pretty to look at 
obvious conclusion. But you're right. By killing the heavy, it now falls for Nettie to really decide what to do. Either continue to pour his resources into killing this one man and child, which they don't seem to be able to do. It seems a little strange to me. Or they can give him the room number and just say, let's be done with this. And he opts for the latter. And I do like the anticlimactic killing of Connor. I think it's so perfect that a character who spent the majority of the movie in hiding dies like this. I'm glad there's not a fight. I'm glad that the mobsters literally open the door for Michael Sr. just to walk in and kill him. This does feel right. It feels like a gangster movie. This is, you know, where it's a total setup. And I do like, you know, the lazy son, the overprivileged, spoiled son gets it so coldly. He's taking a bath and Sullivan walks in and just shoots him in the head. It works. There are all these little parts in this film that I do like. It's just as a whole, it doesn't work for me. Yeah, I have no complaint on this death. It was the coward's death. It's what he deserved. And I was glad to see Nettie give it to Hanks to do. I think it was the right choice. I didn't want a shootout here. God knows. This was all we wanted. But where's the kid? I ask you, what has been happening to the kid? He was left behind. He was not privy to any of this. If he's narrating this, it's all hearsay that he heard later. He would know none of this. He is not on this road. He is not on this journey. He finally gets the perdition. The movie finally redresses what they aborted halfway through. They were going to go get to perdition until Jude Law intervened. Well, now they're there, and it's just as he remembered as a child. Come on, this is totally Godfather 2, right? Even with the water imagery, we know Hanks is a dead man as he's staring out that window. Yeah, I definitely get the feeling, especially since you said the water imagery. What got me was the sound. When the credits are playing at the very beginning, plain white letters on a black background, very basic, but you hear the waves crashing on the beach. And hearing it again, and seeing Tom Hanks obscured through that pane of glass... I'm just straining my eyes behind him to see where Jude Law is standing, because you know he is. I had forgotten it was Jude Law. I will give the movie this. I knew he was dead. I thought it was going to be Nettie betraying him. But no, it's Jude Law getting vengeance. He's not following orders anymore. He's just putting Hanks down for thinking that he could deliver himself and his son. I think this was the right ending. The fact that it's predictable isn't necessarily a ding on it, but it does feel ripped from Coppola. I, I like the fact that he busts his tripod as soon as Hank hits the floor. I had forgotten that detail as well, but it was a good reminder. It's a good character. I wish he were in his own spinoff. I would have much rather watched him for the first portion of this movie than the 40 minutes of setup. Oh, God, I completely disagree. <laughs> to me, he's the Spicoli of this film. I like him in moderation, but I feel that he's so different than everything else going on around him that the more he's in it, the less I like him. I like that Jude Law gave up his vanity and shaved his head for that ugly-ass comb-over. and Oh, everything. Long fingernails, rotten teeth. You see how much sugar he put in his coffee? Kids, brush your teeth. <laughs> Yeah, I like what was going on with that character, but it actually distracts me. I see why he wasn't in the graphic novel. He's a little bit too colorful for here. The only character in the entire script that would have stood up with him is Al Capone. They do share a scene in that cut scene. Harlan was there too, and they get to kind of square off a little bit. But I love these little details. He's a fun character. I don't want any more of him than we get. You know, I kind of agree with you, Arnie. As much as I like Harlan, I think that's where a lot of the fun in this film is. He does seem out of place. He actually really seems out of place to me at the end here. I knew Michael was going to get it because I've read the comic, but it just seems weird that such a colorful comic 
book supervillain shows up, his face all scarred from the glass and setting up his camera. For this film, it really does seem out of place. I have to ask, how'd he die in the comic if there was no Jude Law? It was an anonymous whack. Is someone actually gloating about the fact that he thought it was too easy and this guy was supposed to be the angel of death and he just kind of walked into the house not expecting it. Or maybe he was expecting it and accepted that he was going to die. But it is a nameless goon and the boy does not pick up a gun and kill the oppressors. He's already shot people. Oh, I don't like any of that. Well, I think one of the strengths in the comic is that... Sullivan, he is the angel of death. He is known. There is a reason that the mob would kind of pay attention to why they respect him. Even while he's going after them, going after their money, there is a respect for him because he is so dangerous, which is never sold to me in this film. I don't see how Sullivan is any different than Finn, this anonymous goon that we see get whacked by Connor at the beginning of the film. Yeah, and I just feel like it's contrived the way they write a happy ending here for, well, yeah, I picked up the gun and shot him, but I never did it again. And I went back to that childless couple who conveniently wanted to adopt me that found me and took the bullet out of my dead. I mean, what are you talking about? He didn't shoot Jude Law. Didn't he? No, Tom the Hanks. The son didn't. No, the yeah. son never pulls the trigger. But he picks up a gun and says, I never picked up again. Right, but he never pulled the trigger. Oh, confusing. I thought for sure he got a bullet in there. He must be the VHS, because it's quite clear that Tom Hanks saves him from doing that. Yeah. The whole thing is, if he pulls that trigger, he's damned. And Tom Hanks, in his last act, is able... The distraction is enough to let Tom Hanks get his gun up and save his son from ever having to kill. To me, it's a non-issue either way. Either he killed once, or he never had to kill. The point is, he has been delivered very conveniently from the life of crime and will not follow his father into badness and will be raised by farmers. That was way too easy. I definitely like the comics take that he went into the priesthood. They set up the character of Tom Hanks being someone that always had to confess after his killings. The fact that he would play that role as an adult, it felt like a nice way to end the story. That is something I wish they would have kept. There were a lot of cut scenes of Michael Sr. confessing and going to church. And in the final cut, we do see he carries a gun and a rosary. In the way the final cut comes across, the rosary is a little bit confusing. That would have been a nice touch. I would have liked the priest edition, but everything else you guys are telling me about that comic sound pretty shitty. So Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Road to Perdition? Jacob. Beautiful film. Not going to argue that. Great acting. Not going to argue that. But I am never emotionally engaged in this film. I'm, I'm watching pretty paintings. I'm watching people at the top of their craft. But I don't care about these characters. I don't care about Tom Hanks' character, which is a problem. He's the main character here. I'm more interested in the relationship between Connor and his father. There seems to be a lot more going on with them than between Michael and Michael Jr. I've never given a reason to care about them, and that's a major problem for me. And then you call this the road to perdition, the road to hell. Well, we already know Michael's on that road, but I never see Michael Jr. start down that path. I think that's a major damning pun intended, flaw for the road to perdition is that there isn't that temptation. There isn't ever a moment where I feel he's in danger. And I guess that's my problem with this entire film is that everything that it should be doing, it doesn't. The stuff that works for me is stuff that shouldn't work in this film. Jude Law should not work in this film having this cartoony character, this weird serial killer. Like that shouldn't be totally out of place here, but that's the one thing that I really enjoyed, Road to Perdition, I, I guess if you like watching tumbleweeds blow down the road, you'd enjoy this, but not a recommend. Stewart. We've been down this road before. We've talked about Oscar bait, and I 
would hold this up. It came up in the Aviator, where you guys really felt like the movie was sort of a soulless attempt to try and win awards. I definitely feel like Mindy's is painfully aping the Coppola vibe, hoping to wrench similar glory for himself and keep his Oscar streak up. This is not as good as Godfather 1 or 2. It suffers from many of the same problems as Godfather 3, and which is that I did not care about the kid being delivered from the life of crime. I didn't buy into it. It does not sell me that story in a convincing way. There are many things to recommend here. Namely, it is a gorgeous-looking movie, and I love the performance of Daniel Craig and enjoyed the campiness of Jude Law. They make the movie worth watching. But is that a recommend? I don't know. You know, when I first watched this, I'm like, yeah, I'll give it a pass. But the more I think on this movie, the more it just doesn't sit right with me. And when I read that comic, that's when I knew I was going to weekly not recommend it and recommend the book. What I recommend you do is go back to the source material. I actually enjoyed all the choices that were made on the page. I think the story's told correctly and at the right clip. This movie is too long. It says too many obvious things. It just doesn't hit me in the heart. It's pretending to be a tragedy, but it's just a beautiful aping of gangster movies done better. So weak not recommend, but with the caveat that there are things here to really be impressed with. And I'm going to give this a pretty strong recommend. (laughs) I haven't read the comic. Everything you guys have told me about the comic tell me it doesn't do the things I like here. And yeah, I'm usually the one to scream out and decry Oscar bait and... I will admit, until this conversation, I never thought of this movie as Oscar bait. I realized it had a lot of Oscar people in it, but in the end, being a mob drama that comes out in July, it didn't feel poised for the four-year consideration type ads that I guess it did have since, Stuart, you have the screener. It was actually running underneath the film the whole time. (laughs) Four-year consideration. (laughs) Maybe that was part of it. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that would drive it home in a way that I hadn't considered when I saw this when it was a brand new release on home video. But I think that there is some strong character work here. I'm not saying it's a perfect film. There are some missteps. I think that the pace is something that would turn off certain people. I think that not all of the character moments work. There's a lot of questions I still have about these characters when the credits finally roll. I never feel like get to know Michael Sr. And yeah, as you guys very aptly pointed out, Michael Jr. never feels like a bad kid. He never feels like the fires of hell are calling him. The closest we get is he reads Lone Ranger comics, and he seems excited to drive a getaway car. But I like this story of fathers and sons. I like the parallels. I really like the acting. This film, I've watched it twice. It has engrossed me twice. It's a strong recommend. I really think everyone should check out Road to Perdition. I stand alone, but nothing you guys have said sways me from thinking that there's something in this movie that's not enjoyable. And I'm encouraged that the creative team that put this effort up on screen will not be back. And so even if I had a problem with the creative choices that were made here, I'm still liking this world. I'm still liking Hitman. And I did like that graphic novel. I would want again, yet again, put in a plug to check out the graphic novel, even if you didn't care for the movie itself. It really seems like this was set up to be a Godfather-like trilogy or epic. I mean, if you like the graphic novel, like I said, they did On the Road to Perdition, which fills in some of the gaps. 
There was a novelization. Maybe you'll like the novelization of this, Arnie, where the writer from the graphic novel did the novelization for the film. I wouldn't probably like that because the author himself didn't. He turned in a 90,000-word draft, was really happy with it in the way that he told it as the movie did, not like his comic did, but was able to expand upon everything. And his contract with DreamWorks said he couldn't add a word of dialogue that isn't in the script, and he had to pare it down to 50,000 words and be a rote, slavish retelling of this, and he wishes he'd never taken the gig. (laughs) Wow. Well, he's visited this world. He did two more prose novels, Road to Purgatory and Road to Paradise, which gets into more of Michael Jr., and I haven't read him, but it sounds like he gets into a life of crime before joining the clergy. And then you get Return to Perdition, which is Michael Jr.'s son coming home from the Vietnam War and getting caught up in the underworld of mobsters. Maybe that ties into the Godfather saga. See, I wish they would keep it more in keeping with the historical characters. It's worth pointing out that Paul Newman's character, Rooney, and Daniel Craig were real-life mobsters. They had a real history. They changed the name from Looney to Rooney, but they were really guys in Rock Island, Illinois. I would have rather followed spinoffs that were about other people in their gang. I feel like the Michael Sullivan story has been told. I wouldn't want to read more adventures about him and his offspring debating about whether they should pull the trigger. I just would like to see more true crime gangster stories. And so that's what I'm here for. Maybe I'll get it next week. Well, I don't think the history of violence is based on real life. I have no idea. I've seen it before because I like Cronenberg, but I do not know anything. Again, this was a comic book. Did not know. We will find out next week as we continue our DC Hitmen with, yes, David Cronenberg's A History of Violence. So for next time, remember, just talk, nothing more. Pinball, this is Chopper 3. Prepare for extraction. My favorite part was when we were completely on fire, but the shootout, that was good times. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Now I get to walk away. We all would have walked rogue. Come to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another DC Hitman movie. A more perfect stage could not be asked for. In the archives at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can hear reviews of hundreds of comic book movies, such as all the Batman and Superman films, the Marvel Avengers films, Spider-Man, Catwoman, Howard the Duck, Man-Thing, Kick-Ass, X-Men, and many more. You can also hear reviews of non-comic-based films, including Star Trek, Predator, James Bond, Rambo, Rocky, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. It's like giving a handgun to a six-year-old, Wade. You don't know how it's going to end, but you're pretty sure it's going to make the papers. While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss this review with other listeners. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I need you. They're coming. I can feel it. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. How much do you want? $200. Okay. Good deal. Could I have had more? You'll never know. You can also help Now Playing by leaving a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. 
even though I do not know you, I love you. With all my heart, I love you. Now Playing's DC Hitman Retrospective series is edited by Dylan, Jeff, and Arnie. This is a nice town. We have nice people here. We take care of our nice people. You understand me? Now playing credit narration by Brock. We heard his voice. The man with the voice, the man with the throat. The guy's got a throat. Come on. Now playing is not affiliated with the producers of these motion pictures. All movies discussed on Now Playing are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. So it's like that, huh? Yeah. It's like that. The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. As the authenticity of this document cannot be verified, it could be an elaborate forgery created by the terrorist as easily as it could be the deranged fantasy of a former party member who resigned for psychological reasons. Any discussion of this document or its contents will be regarded at the very least as an act of sedition, if not a willful act of treason. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Frank, how many times have I told you, you cannot trust the system? I told you, when you're in the system, they switch the flip, and you're done. Academy Award winner Tom Hanks. Academy Award winner, Paul Newman. Did you log in an Academy Award? He's been nominated a couple times. Academy yeah. Award. And I guess I stand alone as I really liked American Beauty. I guess we don't have to do that retrospective now. <laughs> and here's a name I never thought I'd bring up in now playing, but Paul Newman is here. <laughs> <laughs> you don't think that we're ever going to get our... Hustler series? No. We could do a salad dressing retrospective. <laughs> I would enjoy that. He makes some good dressing. What about Butch and Sundance, the early years, and Butch and Sundance? Yeah, they did make that sequel. I think it's got Harrison Ford in it. But <laughs> oh, no, 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 it's got Tom Berenger. Ooh, no, we're not going near that. Perhaps it's because it's how it's told, or most likely because they told it that way because they realized it's Tom Hanks, not Jean-Claude Van Damme. Or somebody who's actually relevant nowadays. But. <laughs> yeah, but for the record, I never thought Jean-Claude Van Damme was a badass. The man did the splits while he was fighting. Right, let, me, let me do it again. And their bad guy is really Connor. It's not even John. It's Connor. John right, Connor. Gets... Um... <laughs> Jude Law and Tom Hanks in the diner, and they're kind of squaring off and feeling, feeling each other up. <laughs> um, wrong term. That must have been a cutscene. Yes. <laughs> Road to Perdition, the triple X porn parody. Yes. <laughs>